Well, this morning I want to read uh, the passage that's before us uh, before we begin together. Uh, the title of this message is uh, Leaving Never to Return. Uh, really, the idea is Leaving Jesus Never to Return. It's kind of a, a heavy sermon title. Uh, the last two weeks we've talked about leaving spiritual neverland, and that would be a good way of leaving. The idea of leaving spiritual immaturity and, and growing up. Uh, this is a bad kind of leaving. This would be leaving Jesus uh, really never to return. And so in Hebrews chapter 5, uh, we'll begin reading in verse 11. About this, which is Jesus and his ministry as the great high priest, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The writer of Hebrews here has been encouraging God's people to persevere in the faith. He's been encouraging God's people who are discouraged to not let go of Christ, but keep trusting in Him, keep clinging to their profession. And the concern that he expressed in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, was that they weren't making progress spiritually the way they were supposed to. So we looked at that, the idea that sometimes in the Christian life you might have a season where instead of making progress, you're actually regressing. Rather than growing, you're atrophying. And for the writer of Hebrews, that's a significant concern. If you were to continue to atrophy, it would even indicate ultimately that you didn't know Christ at all. And so he begins to exhort them last week as we saw to press on into maturity. He's saying you need to pursue growth. 
growth in the Lord. You need to grow in grace. And unless we think that that was self-effort, he ends that in chapter 6, verse 3 by saying, if God permits. In other words, the only way that you're able to ever grow spiritually is because God is at work in you, willing behind your working. And so after that encouraging pep talk to press on, the writer issues a very strong warning this morning. It's probably one of the strongest warnings issued in Scripture. Think about how he keeps relating to God's people. He sets forth Christ, and here's an encouraging truth about him, and then here's a significant warning. Right? We have the statement that you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Uh, kind of the idea that you would, you would attract there with the sweetness rather than uh, the acidity or the, the pungent odor of vinegar. Here he's giving uh, sweet encouragements about the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he's, he's giving these kind of sour warnings uh, that are abrupt and a bit shocking. And so we come to this passage this morning, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, and this is a hard passage of Scripture. Uh, Ligon Duncan said that it's a hard passage to understand, and it's also hard to swallow. It's difficult to interpret and get a right meaning, a right understanding of what the passage means. But even when you understand what it means, and it's actually difficult to believe it. The great, late Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous preacher in England, said that over his 35 years in ministry, there was no passage he saw in Scripture that was more disruptive to the assurance of a believer than Hebrews 6, 4-8. through No passage that had caused more disturbance and confusion for God's people that had a sensitive conscience that would fear, perhaps, I've committed the unpardonable sin. Perhaps that sin was one too many, and now I'm outside of Christ, and I will lose my salvation forever. He said it's not the hardest passage in Scripture to interpret, but it's it possesses, as he said, a unique power when misunderstood to unsettle the hearts of a believer. Passages like this are a difficult one. I've been asked about it many times and thought about it many times, and it wasn't because I was preaching on it this Sunday. There's very real questions that this text raises. Uh, Even in our own family, we've wrestled through this text as it applies to loved ones. And so what I want to do this morning is try to walk through this passage in its context. And and what we're going to find here, I think, is is a tremendous encouragement uh, for God's people in the midst of a severe warning. Just to kind of lay out for you what the challenge is, um, the challenge is that there's a, a picture here of of those who lose something spiritually that's irretrievable. And so the question is, who is losing and what are they losing? There's four main views on this passage. The first is that uh, this writer is speaking of true believers who lose their salvation. True believers who lose their salvation. That's one of the prevailing views. Actually, if you were to just stack it up in terms of percentages, uh, which is always a reliable way to interpret Scripture, right? Uh, This would be the highest percentage interpretation would be that this passage is teaching that it is possible for believers to be born again, to be regenerated, to be justified, to be sanctified, then something goes wrong along the way, and they fall away from Christ and they perish in hell for eternity. So, true believers who lose their salvation. That's one view. That's the most popular view. 
Second view is true believers who lose a reward. So the idea is that this passage is speaking of true believers that have a sense of loss, spiritual loss. It's very real, uh, perhaps through backsliding. And then they miss out on uh, some extra benefits in heaven. So their experience of heaven is the loss of rewards. And certainly there's a a biblical precedent for that way of thinking that uh, there are rewards that you can gain and lose uh, in eternity, not your salvation, but rather your experience of heaven. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The third view is that this is a a hypothetical situation. So this would be thinking that it's impossible for believers to lose their salvation, but if we speak really strongly to them, then they'll persevere. And so this is really a hypothetical impossibility that just stirs up in the heart enough maybe anxiety or concern to pursue growth in the Lord, and then therefore you won't defect. The fourth view is that these are those who appear as believers but are not really. And when they fall away from Christ, they fall away from ever. These are people that, that seem like they're believers. Uh, for all intents and purposes, you would think that they are until the situation reveals and exposes that in fact they have no share in Christ and they fall away and when they fall away, they fall away forever. Out of the gate, I'll just tell you, I believe the fourth view is what this passage clearly teaches. And I want to give you a couple of of ways to just frame up our thinking before we dive in that I think will be a help to you, uh, specifically for this text, but in general when we encounter a difficult passage in Scripture. Spurgeon said of this passage, when we come to this passage ourselves, uh, with the intention we must read it with the simplicity of a child and whatever we find therein to state it. What Spurgeon is saying, you just need to come to it with humble faith and say, whatever the text says, that is what I'm going to believe. He continues and says, and if it may not seem to agree with something we have hitherto held, we are prepared to cast away every doctrine of our own rather than one passage of Scripture. So Spurgeon is saying is if I come to a text of Scripture and I find that my flesh doesn't like it, I have to be resolved to say that what must change is my flesh. Let every word of God be found true. Let me be found a liar. So whatever doctrine I think I might be holding on to, if this passage begins to confront that with the truth of Scripture, then I now need to let go of that doctrine that I've held to and cling to what is taught here. I'll give you a couple of helps up front. When you come to this passage, one of the challenges people have is the idea of of the assurance of salvation, the fact that how do I know that I'm in Christ and my faith is secure? What I think goes a little bit wrong in approaching a text like this is, is we have to understand what the author is trying to talk about right now. The author is not really concerned about assurance of salvation in this text. It's not what he's writing about. In other words, this is raising a question in your mind, a question that you want answered that that he is not trying to answer. And so rather than try to find or force an answer from this passage that doesn't exist, we're simply to come and learn what it is that he's after. See, what's on the author's heart this morning is to encourage God's people to persevere in the faith. That's all he's doing. He wants to encourage them to persevere in the faith. So when you come to this text this morning, there's three other watchwords that I would say. 
You do not want to come to a passage and say, that's not agreeable, much like what Spurgeon was saying. That's not agreeable to me, therefore I'm going to discard it. Right? As if it's just like getting a piece of pizza and it happens to have a topping on it that you don't like. So you kind of pick them all off and then you eat your pizza the way that you want to eat it. We don't do that with the scriptures. We come and we receive it as it is whether it makes us feel comfortable or not. And we recognize that our, our sensibilities and our thinking even are corrupt, and so they need to be renewed by the truth. The next thing you've got to be careful of is the idea of rescuing God. And it's interesting, so often um, I'll, I'll uh, read someone writing about a very clear passage of Scripture that's sharp, and they begin to make qualification after qualification after qualification to kind of blunt the edge of that sharpness as though God's character needs to be rescued. Just let the text say what it says. Let that sharp edge remain. And then finally, the idea of importing your systematic theology into the Bible. Yes, the Bible interprets the Bible. Yes, we need to reconcile every passage with the whole counsel of Scripture. But you've got to resist the urge of approaching a text like this and saying, I already have a foregone conclusion about my doctrine of salvation, my soteriology, and therefore I know what this passage can and cannot mean. So when you do that, what will tend to happen is that you will... You will miss uh, understanding the import and the weight of the text. So here to summarize this passage, the key thought is simply this. People who experience profound spiritual blessings and then walk away from Jesus don't come back. You want it in a sentence, it's this. People who experience profound spiritual blessings and then walk away from Jesus don't come back. What we see in this passage is that there are those who would have a false hope in their religious experience. A false trust in uh, what they have done or seen. John Piper describes it this way. This passage says that there's a spiritual condition that makes repentance and salvation impossible. It says that this condition may look in many ways like salvation, but it isn't. And it leads to destruction. And so this text is a warning to us not to assume that we are secure when our lives have some religious experience, but no growing fruit. My friends, over and over and over, this author is encouraging God's people to look to Jesus and to cling to him. God is the one who saves and God is the one who preserves. Our salvation is not dependent upon our own faithfulness. If that was the case, you would fall away immediately and end up separating from Christ. But it is also true that Jesus will preserve the faith of those who belong to him. That your faith will abide. That's the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. That's where the phrase eternal security gets, gets the waters muddled a little bit. The idea that once saved, always saved, that my soul's eternally secure. Well, yes, in a sense that's true, but how? Through the preservation of your faith by continuing to remain in Christ. And so the author is concerned. He's concerned about believers who are, are not growing the way they ought. And his concern is if, if you remain in that state long enough, potentially you're going to reach a point of no return. So if you remember back from chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, these believers were lacking in discernment. These believers were spiritually immature. 
They'd not become teachers the way they were supposed to be. They had a dullness of comprehension. They'd become accustomed to taking in God's Word superficially, so they were unaffected by it and unchanged. And so the Word of God would come, and it it just had no impact on them. And so he calls them to grow, chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And so he's saying, you're not growing the way you ought to be, therefore I'm calling you to grow. And then now in verse 4, he begins it, for it is impossible. That for is explanatory, it's a reason. And so he's grounding now what he said in this concern that there are those who fall away never to return. If you'd like to keep an outline, it's behind me there on the screen. Those who leave Jesus never to return. Who are these people? Verses 4 through 6a. Why, uh, what, why is what they did so bad? It's phrased a little bit awkwardly. And then how does this illustration in the passage fit? It's a description of those who leave Jesus never to return. The author is saying, I want you to pursue growth for this reason that I'm going to give you in verses 4 through 8. I want you to pursue growth for this reason that I'm going to give you in verses 4 through 8. He says that there are some who will leave the faith never to return again. And so the first question that we have to understand is, who are these people? Who is it that makes them up? When you read in your English translation, for it is impossible, the very first word in the sentence is impossible. That's the emphasis. That's the the main focal point that the author wants you to understand is the impossibility of this situation. Now, as I study this passage, my heart says, Lord, I want it to be possible. Please say this isn't so. Wish that it said it's difficult. Um, it's, It's not very likely. It's unusual. It's rare. Begin to think, what does this potentially mean for those I know that fit this category? Because the writer says that there's a situation here that is impossible to be restored spiritually. Some of you might remark and say, well, I know how we can modify that. Did not Peter say to the Lord, Wait, if that's the qualification for salvation, then surely it's impossible. Who could be saved? And the Lord said, well, with me, right? All things are possible. Is that really what impossible means? When the Lord says that to Peter, that even impossible things could be possible? Hebrews 6.18 says it's impossible for God to lie. So apparently when he told Peter all things are possible, he doesn't mean truly all things are possible. He can't sin. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews 10.4, can't do it, doesn't work, it's impossible. Hebrews 11.6, it's impossible to please God without faith. And here it is impossible to renew, to bring back, to restore to repentance those who meet this criteria. 
That's really the, the verbal statement for, this is the reason why I want you to press on. It is impossible, that is emphatic, to restore, to restore, to renew them again to repentance. So all that middle section is going to describe these for whom it is impossible to restore. The idea of restoration immediately, uh, and then the word again, is, is bringing to mind the fact that these are people who at one point had an experience of repentance. Because to restore or to renew means to bring them back to that state. That means at some point they had an experience with God where they saw themselves to be a sinner. At some point they had an experience where they expressed faith in Christ. At some point they repented and believed. They turned to the living God. And the writers here is saying there, there comes a point where someone departs from that and then they can't be brought back to that state yet again. To say something is impossible is a warning. A warning that there's an invisible line that you don't know where it is and I don't know where it is, but once crossed cannot be come back from. And so who are these people we need to understand that had this profession of repentance? There's one article in the original that governs the whole phrase. So uh, all of these descriptors are describing one person, one type of person. And the writer says it's those who have been once enlightened, They've tasted of the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then they have fallen away. It's a pretty lengthy descriptors. When you hear all of those things, you think automatically as you should. Sounds like a Christian. I mean, if you were to describe someone that was enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and was a partaker of the Holy Spirit and tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, all of those to me sound like descriptors of a believer. Each of these participles is in the middle or the passive voice and what that means is that um, someone found themselves in that experience. In other words, these are people who have, have, been, have been a part of the church. They've known the spiritual blessings of the Lord. They've received spiritual benefits. And certainly every Christian has experienced these things. But the question is, can you experience these things and not be a Christian? I believe the answer is yes. And the point the author is making is that you cannot rely on your spiritual experiences for the hope of your salvation. But rather an abiding trust in the person of Jesus that results in a growing conformity to him. Think of it this way, these are all things that you would associate with salvation, and yet the trained eye of the writer of Hebrews is saying it's actually possible as a red herring to possess all of these things and never actually have saving faith in Christ. I want to look at each of these just briefly and give you an explanation of, of what they mean, the, the people who have, have experienced these things. Uh, what does it mean? Well, those who've been enlightened, this is used metaphorically and literally uh, throughout the New Testament. It's the idea of uh, if we turn the lights on, right, that's being enlightened where all of a sudden you can see. Uh, so it's used literally and physically. It's also used metaphorically. 
And it's used, the idea of those who've been illuminated spiritually. Those who've received revelation. Those who've seen a great light. Some degree of understanding of who they are and who God is and even the way of salvation. They've now been enlightened. Not only that, but they've tasted of the heavenly gift. Sometimes people will will say, now you can see the the weakness here. They tasted, but they didn't swallow. (laughs) Right? It's like you just have a little sip. If you're tasting and you spit and you taste and you spit and you taste and you spit. So they just tasted and they didn't actually ingest. That's what the issue is. The right of Hebrews says Jesus tasted death in Hebrews 2. A little bit more than, than rinse and spit, right? He experienced death. And so I believe here he's talking about people who've actually experienced this heavenly gift. Uh, it's not used anywhere in the New Testament exactly. Um, similar phrases would refer to, to really the gift of salvation, some experience of the gift of salvation. Some moment where they said, I, I came to Christ and I experienced life change. I experienced a sensation. I experienced an inclination toward morality. I experienced freedom or the sense of forgiveness. Those who've shared in the Holy Spirit. This idea of those who've been made to participate in some way in the third person of the Trinity. It's probably the most challenging statement in the litany. The idea here would be to, to participate is is not the same word used for the the intimate fellowship, but rather a shared experience. And so the way I think that you could understand this is, you've been in and among the people of God, and you've seen the Spirit of God at work. And so you're hearing testimonies of the Spirit radically saving people and transforming them. You're seeing the, the Spirit of God grant new life into dead hearts. And so while you're there and you're among the people of God, you're, you're benefiting from the the fellowship and the partaking of all that the Spirit of God is doing among His people. This is those who've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Those who've come into contact with God's revelation. The qualitative aspect of of being good means that it was a beneficial encounter. They heard sermons and they thought, and I agree with that. I like that. Maybe that makes me feel good. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm kind of stirred up to respond for a day or a week. And we just read the parable of the soils last week. And how terrifying is that? That the, the, the word, the seed goes in and growth happens. And two out of the three that grow don't last. One lasts until trials and afflictions come and then it defects. The other lasts until it gets choked out by the desires for other things. And then it defects. And so these people had some experience, some taste of the goodness of the Word of God. They knew the benefits at some level, but it was short-lived and superficial. And finally, they tasted of the powers of the age to come. This would be some understanding of, of the greatness of God and the coming kingdom and an awareness that it was at hand and some sort of response that recognized uh, God is in this place. If you were to summarize what these people were, 
Wayne Grudem says it like this. What has happened to these people? They are at least people who have been affiliated closely with the fellowship of the church. They've had some sorrow for sin and a decision to forsake their sin. That would be repentance. They've clearly understood the gospel and given some assent to it. They've been enlightened. They've come to appreciate the attractiveness of the Christian life and the change that comes about in people's lives because of becoming a Christian. And they've probably even had answers to prayers in their own lives and felt the power of the Holy Spirit at work, perhaps even using some gift that felt like a spiritual gift. They were associated with the work of the Holy Spirit. For all of these spiritual benefits that they have received, that they've experienced, right? They're part of the, the passive and the middle participles. They were in and among and around all of these things. Uh, they were experiencing them. And then linked together, now switching from the middle passive to the active, and then they fall away. So they have all of these five attributes of experience of the Christian life of Christ And then the sixth attribute is that they don't remain. They fall away. This word for falling away means to abandon a former relationship or association. To disassociate. It's a reversal, of course. It's the idea of of now abandoning that revelation that you were enlightened by. Abandoning the heavenly gift that you tasted of. Abandoning the spirit that you were made a partaker of. Abandoning the good word that you had tasted. And abandoning the power to come. It's the idea of leaving or following away from a closely held relationship. And so what this is talking about here is a defection of the faith. My friends, what you need to understand here is that this is not This is not a Christian struggling with a besetting sin. This is not a Christian who is struggling with weak faith and is easily faint-hearted. This isn't even a Christian who goes through a spiritually dry season and is is backsliding for a time. This is turning and leaving It's the John 6, 66 when Jesus was preaching and it says many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They didn't leave for the afternoon. They didn't leave for the weekend. They didn't take a break. They left and when they left, they weren't coming back. So the author here is talking about those who leave. They leave in a point of no return. These are those whom John spoke of in his epistle, 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out so that it might become plain that all are not of us. When did it become plain that they're not of us? As soon as they stopped continuing with us and they departed. That was the point that clarity came about. If you were to understand the the backdrop of all of this, the writer of Hebrews in in chapters 3 and 4 was talking about the Exodus generation, right? From Israel that left Egypt. And the lesson there was that among all of the, the corporate people of God, that entire generation was unbelieving, right? Except for Joshua and Caleb. There was a small remnant that trusted the Lord and his promises. Most of them were unbelieving. 
And so I think you could take all of these and uh, words here of those who've been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and you could apply that all to the, the Exodus generation. They saw the presence of God with a pillar of cloud and fire. Right? They tasted manna, the heavenly gift from above. They experienced the, the Word of God coming down from Mount Sinai. All of these spiritual benefits, and yet it didn't profit them because they rebelled in apostasy against the Lord. So the author is reminding his readers that just as not every member of the covenant community of Israel was actually saved, so too in the church, not every person who's a member of the church is saved. So how do we understand this? My friends, he's not against failure in the Christian life. Right? Proverbs 24.16 says, The righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. The idea is that a, a righteous person, a genuine believer, might fall away but will come back to Christ. An apostate falls away and now that's their new permanent condition. They don't come back. Pathway to apostasy is unbelief. It's a warring of desires. But there comes within the human heart at some point the decision of saying, Christ or what I want. And in that equation, rather than saying that Christ is more worthy, not worthy of being compared to the passing pleasures of this life, they say actually the passing pleasures of this life are not worthy to be compared to Christ. See, apostasy is, is alarming. You might read this and say, what alarms me is that, that these things seem so close to belief. How could someone fall away? It's a little bit jarring. It's a little bit unsettling, if we're honest. It makes me uncomfortable. If you've been paying attention, I think it would make you uncomfortable. The very idea of apostasy is that you have to abandon something, right? That's the difference between just genuine, genuine unbelief or general unbelief and apostasy. Apostasy, you're actually leaving something. So if you're starting to feel uncomfortable at the idea that someone could be so close to salvation and not be saved, then you're starting to understand the point that the author is making. Started to think about this in my own life. You don't know what it looks like to be this close to salvation and not possess it? I think I shared this at the beginning of Hebrews. I have three pastors who I personally know. Three men who preached with the apparent gift of preaching to the edification of the saints. Three men who saw gospel conversions under their evangelism. Trained me in evangelism. Two of them trained me in preaching. Discipled my life. Spoke into my marriage. Counseled me in the truth. Helped me grow in love for the Savior whom I love. All three of them abandoned their marriages. Two of them have abandoned Christ altogether. One of them is living in hypocrisy that's unrepentant. All of them were gifted. All of them promoted godly living in their teaching. All of them spoke adoringly of their wives. They'd all been seminary trained. They were reformed in their theology. They were expositional in their preaching. And friends, you are not saved by religious experiences. 
You're not saved by how good your theology is, who you've been trained by. You're not saved by your profession of faith. You could be leading others to salvation in Christ, doesn't mean you're saved. You could be baptized, it doesn't mean that you're saved. You could go to a church with great theology, it doesn't mean that you're saved. Your spouse could be saved, your parents could be saved, that doesn't mean that you have salvation in Christ. So you can be that close to salvation, but when you depart, it evidences that you never really knew Jesus. And friends, if you think that what I'm saying sounds sounds too serious or too alarming, I want you to just hear the words that we often find so comforting in John 15 and hear them freshly. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Did you hear it? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I was floored the first time I discovered that. To realize that the the branch is connected in some way to Christ. Not salvifically. It's not someone who was saved and then loses their salvation, but connected to Christ in such a way that you would say the branch is connected to the vine. And yet because that branch, for all of its association with Jesus, does not bear fruit, it's broken off. And it's cast into the fire. Jesus says right there in verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, if he doesn't remain in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. One of the challenges when you read a passage like this is you and I both know people who've left the faith. Probably people who are dear to you. And the question becomes, are they at the spot where it's impossible to be restored to repentance? Could they have have committed the unpardonable sin? Did they take it too far? And I think this is where we have to, to understand what's being said here and what's not being said here and the purpose for which it's given. See, the author is not saying, I want to give you a litmus test to go out and evaluate where other people are at spiritually. He's saying, I want you to be aware that there's a precipice that you can fall off of. And I want that awareness to cause you to pursue growth in Christ. That's the focal point. So do we stop offering Christ to those who have abandoned him? No. There's no verse in scripture that is commanding us to do that or to stop praying. But you are to recognize that there's a point of no return. You're to think about it this way. This is the the, the unsugar-coated reality that there's a, a departure that's irreversible. Think about all of the experiences you have in life where you leave something and you can't come back. Right? It's something as trivial as, as going out of the amusement park and you forget to get your hand stamped, stamped on the way out and then you can't come back in. You're kind of questioning if you really want to go out. Perhaps you've gone out of a building like this where you you go out the door and then you remember you forgot something. You go to come back in and realize there's no handle. I can't get back in. It was a one-way exit. Or maybe leaving airport security, right? You kind of have that sign. Whatever you want to do, you got to do it now because when you go through, you cannot turn around and come back. 
And so the, the urging here is for those who've experienced the grace of God and the blessings associated with knowing him, but don't actually trust Christ, don't think that you can just walk away and come back whenever you choose. And probably the best way of illustrating this was in 1960 at Niagara Falls, very familiar story you've probably heard before, but the man went out on a 12-foot aluminum boat. He knew the Niagara River well. He had uh, two kids with him, a teenage girl and a seven-year-old boy, and uh, decided they would float down the river for several miles. He'd killed his 3.5 horsepower Evenrude uh, outboard motor on his little aluminum boat and uh, drifted down the river. It was a beautiful day. Came under the North Grand Island Bridge, which is considered the point of no return. It is that once you get past that bridge, the current is so powerful, 70 miles per hour of water tearing down Horseshoe Falls, that once you get past that point, there's no going back. So he floated along past the bridge, and uh, he realized where they were at, kicked that outboard motor into gear, and found as much as he's fighting to go back up river, the trees are going the other way, right? You, you pass the point of no return. You're heading down the waterfall. Incidentally, the, the girl made it out alive. 20 feet before the waterfall, she was able to jump out. And the little boy is the only person to live unintentionally falling off the falls. He's still alive today. And uh, he was in a life, life preserver, 45 pounds. He just got catapulted out and lived. But the idea that the, the man certainly who was steering the boat met his death that day. And all that had happened was he went past the point of no return, assuming that he would be all right. And in fact, he didn't have what he thought he did in that little motor. My friends, when you think about the, the Christian life, then this is called to spur us on to not be thinking, man, how close could I get to the precipice without falling over? Rather to say, if that's the spiritual peril that awaits me, I want to cling closer to Christ. I don't want to cling to my Savior. And with the full awareness that the only reason why I will wake up tomorrow and not apostatize is because of His grace and power preserving me. Not any of my own doing. My friends, those who commit apostasy in this way and fall away, they don't come back. So I was thinking about this and reflecting This is to cause us as believers to want to draw nearer to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. To recognize that it is possible to be that blessed and benefited by the graces of God and not actually possess them. Well, the writer of Hebrews now is going to go on and he's going to address why he takes this so seriously. Why is it? What what is it that these people did that was so bad, so to speak? Why is it that they're not going to come back? Well, the reason comes in the second part of verse 6. It's since they are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Since they are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now, there are those who would say, this is a temporal participle, and so what it means is, uh, so long as they are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm, 
So long as they're in that state, they can't repent. And you say, well, if that's your perspective, then the whole warning doesn't make sense anymore. Because as long as anyone's not repenting, they're not repenting. What he's talking about here is, is this idea of, of, of coming against the Son of God in a very significant way. And so I, I was thinking about this for just a moment, maybe to, to answer a question that you might be uh, experiencing. It's a question that I have. What about those that I, I know who grew up in the church professing Christ, perhaps even baptized as a child? They made a profession of faith. And as they got older, it became clear that they didn't know Christ. They weren't a Christian. They spent a decade in the rejection of Christ, only to come to faith in repentance and then be baptized and be welcomed into the family of God by God's people. How does that work? Didn't those people apostatize and then return? Was that re-crucifying Christ? Was that somehow impossible and therefore fraudulent? I think the misunderstanding here is that the re-crucifying of Christ is, is not the idea that, that these people have gone away now and committed an unforgivable, unforgivable sin. Uh, the issue isn't a lack of forgiveness here. It's not that you've, you've done something so severe that now God will not forgive you, and that's why it's impossible. The impossibility is that when you sin that significantly against your conscience, you become so hardened that you're never going to come back. That's what he's talking about. See, the impossibility isn't that God is no longer able to save you. It's not that you've committed a sin that is unpardonable or beyond forgiveness. It's the idea that when, when you walk at a certain level of light that you've now sinned against, you are so hard you're not coming back. That's why it is impossible to restore them. I want you to think about this for just a minute. What did this look like in Scripture? Well, for Judas, right, it was selling the Lord Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Modern day equivalent, a Honda Civic. He sold the Lord of glory for a paid off Honda Civic. You understand what he had to trample over in his conscience to get to that point? To actually do that deed? He had to shut the thing up over and over and over. He had so much light, so much understanding of who the Savior was, so much revelation about who Jesus was and his power to save. Begin to think about those who would leave Christianity particularly those who had a strong profession. What does it mean to re-crucify Jesus Christ? I was thinking about this. The, a couple of years ago, a high-profile pastor that defected from the faith had sold millions of books to evangelicalism. Millions of people that he'd made a profession of faith before. What happens? Well, when you leave the faith, you use words like deconstruction now, right? It's a euphemism. Euphemism is where you, you try and make something sound softer than it really is. So to say deconstruction sounds um, not really that bad, frankly. You're just kind of in a, a season of deconstruction of your faith. You're reevaluating. Understand that to, to leave your profession of Christ and to now stand over here with the world against him is to say, the one who I call Lord is actually a liar 
or he's a lunatic. He's not God. He didn't die a substitutionary death for his people. He's not the exclusive way of salvation. He's a pathetic loser. And you know what? He deserved to die. He got what was coming to him. He should have been crucified. He's not the Lord of glory. If he was the Lord of glory, I would trust in him, but I don't trust in him. He was a foolish Jewish carpenter who got what was coming to him. And so the picture here is, is of this one, the ones that he's talking about, who've once been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then fallen away who cannot be restored, have now become enemies of the cross of Christ. And the hardening that took place was such that it's not something they're ever going to go back on. Because they're crucifying once again the Son of God. doesn't mean that they're they're daily re-crucifying. And the thought is that they're going back and they're saying to their own harm that the crucifixion should have happened. And so it's as if they were back there shouting, crucify him. That's what he deserves. See, well, how is it that someone reaches that point? I think Esau was a good example of that. Hebrews 12, 17, you know that afterward, after he sold his birthright for a meal, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, and he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. It's very much like the, the parable of, of Lazarus and the rich man, when the rich man is suffering in hell, and he's saying to Lazarus, Lazarus, please go back, tell my family so that they repent. I beg you, send someone to my father's house and warn them so they don't come here too. And Abraham said to him, what? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And he said to them, they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. See, here's the deal. My, my pastor friends who've abandoned the faith, what more is there to say at this point? Some of those guys know the truth better than I do. They've taught it for decades. There's no place for repentance because there's, there's nothing you haven't heard before. You've rejected the full knowledge of truth. You've rejected who Jesus is. You've rejected his gospel. You've walked away from it all. And now there's, there's no way to, to urge you to believe it just a little bit more. Very similar to when Jesus walked away from Bethsaida and Chorazin, and he's saying, I've done all the mighty works I can do there. If Tyre and Sidon had seen those works, they would have repented. You guys rejected them, and, and there's nothing more I can do. You're hardened in your unbelief. My friends, I want you to have this ingrained in your mind. I keep reviewing it over and over. This is not weakness. This is not weak faith. This is ultimate departure. Remember our Lord even uh, clarified through Paul the difference between struggling in your faith and departing from your faith when he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, that's the departure, he will also deny us. But if we are faithless, he will remain faithful. And friends, the difference between a believer and the one who departs here is a believer keeps going back to Jesus, even in their weak faith. Even in their seasons of unbelief, they have an exclusive trust in the Son of God who is crucified for them. 
believe the final illustration here in this text makes clear that what I've laid before you to the best of my ability is the right interpretation. I think it makes the most sense then of, of this illustration to kind of explain the point that was just made. Verse 7, for land that is drunk the rain that often falls on it. So now we're going to an illustration here. Land that's drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Here's a picture of produce from land. What's being pictured here is is rain coming down, and the rain would be spiritual blessings. The rain would be God pouring out truth and grace and mercy on His people. You want to know if you've been rained on? Do you know the gospel message? That's God sending rain upon you. Do you possess a copy of the scriptures? That's the the rain that God is mercifully showering down upon you? Have you witnessed God's power transforming those around you? That is rain. You ever seen a baptism? That's rain. Ever attended a church service? That's rain. Ever enjoyed the fellowship of God's people? That would be rain that He's pouring down on your heart. You ever ever uttered a prayer to God? Ever sensed His nearness to you? My friends, these are expressions of the rain of God being poured down on human hearts. And so the question is, as you've been rained upon by God's mercy, to what end? What is the response of your heart? Does that rain come and, and soften the soil of your heart? So that you're inclined to love the Savior and trust in Him? And my friends, you, not by your own doing, are the land here that drinks the rain and produces. It has its intended effect. It attests to the work of God on your behalf. But the the ground that receives that rain that's designed to make things grow, the one that produces only thorns and thistles. In other words, it might produce all of the things we learned about earlier, kind of some some experiences and some memories and some associations with Christianity, but there's no supernatural fruit. There's no love for and trust in Jesus Christ. Well, that's worthless ground. And look at the urgency in the text. It's near to being cursed. So even in that, setting up just a glimmer of hope. It's not too late. Today, if you hear his voice, repent. It's near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Burning of the land was a sign of apostasy in Deuteronomy, right? We have all these imageries that go back to the Old Testament. As the Lord had said, To Israel in Deuteronomy 29, you guys have forsaken me, and so now in my anger, I'm going to burn the land. Now friends, the burning is not the temporary loss of spiritual rewards. It's being cut off forever from Christ in hell. That's the type of burning that he's talking about. 
And so you can see as we work through this, that this is a passage that is both hard to understand in some of these things, and then it's somewhat hard to swallow. The thought that in his justice, God would actually have those who hear his gospel, who are among his people, who respond in faith, and then when they depart, that was their last chance, their last opportunity for faith. They will not find repentance. So where does that leave us this morning? I want you to finish that paragraph with me. As you said, the scripture always comes to us in context. Look at what the author says here after that warning. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. See, I don't know if you picked up on this as we read through it quickly, but Earlier, when the author was talking in verses 1 through 3, he's saying, us, we, you. And he starts talking about these who are falling away without the possibility, or without the possibility of repentance. In verse 4, he's talking about those. He's giving them a very real illustration of what happens, but he's not talking specifically about the folks. And now he comes back full circle and he's back to the the pronouns there, the second person pronouns, though we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved. Who are the beloved? Those are the loved ones of God. Those are the ones whom God loves. And so he's reminding them that they're not to be shaken by a passage like this. They're simply to be reminded to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about being the loved one of God. That is God's work on your behalf. And there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God if you're in Christ. This Apostle Paul said, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friends, this text is a reminder that you cannot keep yourself in the love of God. That you simply cannot sustain your own faith. It is God who preserves you. And he preserves your faith through means like this, through warnings that cause you to be sober-minded and cause you to recognize that there's nothing in you that could cling to him. So you go back to your Savior and you confess your dependence and you let his character strengthen you. My friends, your salvation does not depend on your faithfulness to Jesus Christ. It doesn't hinge on you not falling into sin. It can't be undone by a season of backsliding or even unbelief. When you read a passage like this, it's to cause you to rely all the more in hope that the God who started salvation in you will bring it to completion. Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, I think of all the ways that we could misunderstand a text like this that would be to our harm and our detriment and undo things that you don't want undone. Um, Father, it's weighty and heavy. It's not a sad passage, but it is heavy. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, as we um, think about the application of it, um, Lord, you would apply it as each of us has need. Uh, Lord, as we make sense of our own uh, spiritual condition, and as we seek to minister to those around us. Um, Lord, I do thank you for your faithfulness. And uh, even as unsettling as it is to be reminded of our frailty, uh, Lord, to recognize that even that is simply the admission of our need for you. And it's an opportunity to worship you and praise you uh, because you don't save the strong, 
Uh, You don't save the faithful. Uh, You save those who are sick and those who need a Savior. What a great Savior you are. We praise your holy name. We praise you for your salvation. We love you. Amen.